This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning in the scripture, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can be here today to focus upon your word. Your word is a light in our life. As the psalmist said, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as we study in the light of your word, it sheds light upon our thinking and upon our lives so that we can come to live uh, as you would have us to live in line with the purpose for which you've created the human race. Father, we're thankful that we can be here today in a land, in a country where there's freedom to teach and proclaim your word. We continue to pray for our leaders, uh, from the president all the way down to local uh, city and county leaders, that you might give them wisdom in leading and legislating and in dealing with various issues facing the uh, various communities, that they might preserve our freedoms and that we might continue to enjoy uh, the wonderful things that you have provided for this nation. Father, we pray for us that we might not take these things lightly, but we might uh, understand the serious responsibility that is upon us because of that which has been bequeathed to us and given to us. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Proverbs uh, chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Now, we've already covered the first nine chapters of Proverbs, as you're well aware, over the past several months. And the book of Proverbs has a very little great organization. Basically, you have the first nine chapters or the opening introduction or the prologue uh, to the book of Proverbs, introducing many of the major themes. Then when you come to Proverbs chapter 10, and following, we get into the basic uh, individual Proverbs, just a collection of individual sayings where there's no thematic, uh, uh, there's no thematic organization from chapter to chapter or paragraph to paragraph. So from this point on through the remainder of the summer and on into uh, uh, September, I will be going through the rest of Proverbs in a more categorical or topical manner. So we will look at, uh, just sort of, sort of summarize what we learned from various Proverbs related to different uh, specific topics. As we pointed out in the introduction, Proverbs is a book about how to live well, how to live wisely, how to really experience a fullness of life as God intended. 
So many people get the idea that somehow God is uh, up in heaven trying to restrict people from really enjoying life when the opposite is true. God understands the issues and the problems living in a fallen world, living with a sin nature, and God has provided us with all that we need in order to overcome the deficits we face by living in Satan's world. But we have to engage our volition. We have to make decisions. Our life is basically the result of the choices that we make, and it's up to us to engage in those choices. So Proverbs is basically a book about about living wisely, about making wise choices. And so chosen for the uh, focal point of the of the book, a path, a road, going into the woods and diverging in two directions. For this is something that faces us every single day. Are we going to choose the path of life or the path of death? And the path of life is God's path called the way of wisdom or the way of righteousness. It's the path of life. And the other is the path of death. Proverbs 14.12 warns us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The only way we can understand how to pursue life is to understand God's instructions and what God teaches in his word. Now, the topic for today is going to be on what the scripture teaches about work, about honest, wise labor. And in contrast, the scripture warns or Proverbs warns very much against being slothful, against being a sluggard, against being lazy and uh, and exhorts us to work hard, to work diligently. So some of the words that are key to this study uh, involve words like work and labor, uh, diligence. These are important concepts. And on the negative side, uh, the word in some of the older translations, it was translated slothful. In some of the more modern translations, it's translated being lazy. And so we need to understand uh, this emphasis and what it is, uh, what it is all about. Scripture says a lot about work. It says a lot about money. In fact, one of the most frequent topics throughout the scriptures is on the topic of money and how we use our financial resources. And part of that, or a topic that relates to that, is this topic of work and this topic of labor, and that the emphasis is on our individual responsibility to be involved in labor, both spiritually as well as physically, that this is important. A sad fact of reality is that if we survey history, we discover that when a culture, uh, when a nation goes through a time of prosperity, they become lazy, they relax, they quit working as hard, that survival drive is no longer there, and they become complacent, and they relax with what they have, and they begin to fail the prosperity test. And what soon happens is that they become dependent. And we see this in our own nation, and we see this a lot in Western civilization. If we look at the things that have happened in the last five or six years in Western Europe, uh, not so much in the United States. We haven't reached the end of the game, so to speak, as uh, as many nations in, in Europe have. 
but where they have built this uh, this economic system and this culture of dependency uh, for their people, where you have places that guarantee, where the governments guarantee maybe a month or six weeks of vacation to every worker, paid vacation to every worker, and the government pays so much to every worker, guarantees a a, a certain wage to everyone that at some point somebody has to pay. And what has typically happened under these kinds of socialistic uh, systems is that people, uh, sooner or later, government runs out of money because the governments do not create money. Government does not create wealth. Government simply takes the produce, the product of the wealth of the people, the labor of the people, and then returns that and is supposed to return that in the forms of certain restricted uh, goods and services. But government itself does not uh, does not develop or produce wealth. And so when the culture becomes more and more dependent upon the government to supply their medical uh, financial care uh, in order to take care of retirement through systems like Social Security and through uh, welfare, various uh, welfare systems. What that creates is a culture of dependency, and it is only natural for fallen creatures who have a predilection for irresponsibility to when the opportunity is there and I have this problem or that problem, say, golly, I just found out that the government's got a program and I can get four or $500 free. Well, it's not really free. If somebody's working to produce that or it's just being generated out of some sort of deficit scheme which sooner or later reaches bankruptcy. And then... When that uh, country, that nation, that government begins to have to tighten its purse strings, the people have been on this drug of free money, free programs. And so then they get mad. And we've seen in the past several years riots in uh, Spain and in uh, Greece and a few other places because the people want to fight any kind of restriction, any kind of tightening on the purse strings. And what the Bible teaches is that we're all responsible for our own lives. We're responsible for feeding ourselves. We're responsible for feeding our families. We're responsible for providing for our future. There is a role and a place for uh, for compassion to take care of and provide for those who are uh, in uh, difficult situations, widows and orphans. And under the Mosaic Law, there was a... 10% uh, income tax, you might say, a 10% uh, tax called a tithe that was taken every three years for the purpose of supplying the needs for widows and orphans. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't sound like very much. Well, no, that's because as a biblical culture under the Mosaic Law, the family was supposed to take care of those who who uh, grew older and those who were unable to take care of themselves. And so the government, the, uh, the responsibility of the government through that third tithe only came in as a secondary benefit. It was not designed to create a, a culture of dependency. But there's, it's very difficult to maintain that balance between a compassionate, genuine compassionate care for people 
and creating a system where the government actually enables and promotes irresponsibility and laziness. And so we have lost a lot of our historic uh, emphasis on the, the, the value of individual work and labor. There is no labor that we can engage in, no physical labor that we can engage in that is not honorable. And yet we often see a problem, and we're facing one today with legislation currently before the Senate dealing with uh, illegal immigration, with illegal aliens that have come here to work. And part of the reason that they find an open market for their, their unskilled labor is because as we go through the prosperity test, then a certain number of uh, um, Americans feel like they are above certain kinds of work, and they just don't want to go out and do that. I had a discussion with somebody this last week about uh, <clears throat> getting a house, or they were having trouble finding somebody to uh, to cut their, cut their yard, had a couple of acres, and would uh, easily hire somebody. But teenagers, unskilled labor wants uh, an excessive amount just to come in and do that. I remember cutting the y- yards for 50 cents, at one point, that went up to 75 and then a dollar because that was in an age when there was some inflation. But uh, I, I remember uh, starting to do that when I was probably 11 or 12 years of age just to get enough money to go down to the local bookstore and buy a book. I would usually get up in the morning. You all know what the Houston weather's like. You want to get those yards cut before 9 o'clock in the morning. And I would cut the grass, and as soon as the store, the bookstore opened, I would ride my bike down to uh, Westbury Square where there was a bookstore, go in and buy a paperback book, come home, read that all day in the cool of the air conditioning, get up the next morning, go cut another yard, get 50 cents, and go down and buy another paperback. And that's basically how my library started. Uh, became addicted to reading and to books at a at a tender age. The reason I work is simply to feed my addiction of books. But the Bible puts an emphasis on that. And we live in a world today when there are too many people in our culture saying, oh, that kind of labor is beneath me. There is no labor. Biblically, there's no labor that is beneath anyone. All labor, honest labor, has value, and we should value what somebody does. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it is a more menial job or one that uh, demands a higher level of training and education. All honest labor has value uh, before God and for the individual. So let's begin by looking a little bit of the background on labor in the Scriptures. First of all, The value of labor is part of the first divine institution, which I call individual responsibility. Some people call it different things, but I think the core issue in the first divine institution is individual responsibility. Divine institution were social laws that God built into the fabric of creation. They are built into the nature of mankind and nature of the social structure of man. The first three divine institutions were established before there was sin. Individual responsibility to God. Uh, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and given various commands of things to do, for example, to guard and keep the garden, uh, and a prohibition not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they had responsibility. It, the labor wasn't laborious. It wasn't toil. 
It wasn't negative because there was no sin yet. It was without any resistance from the rest of creation. And so as part of individual responsibility, there was labor. That labor was part of man's makeup as being in the image and likeness of God. Uh, God is first depicted for us in Scripture as a worker, as a laborer who labors for six days in creation and then rests on the seventh. We read the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done. God is depicted as a worker, a creator. Work which he had done, he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done and blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because, again, it states he rested from all his work. And then in Genesis 2.15, we see that the Lord God took the man. He has At this point, he had not created uh, Eve. He took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Labor had responsibility. So this is the starting point of labor. But something happens in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes along and tempts Eve with the fruit of the forbidden tree, and she yields to that temptation, and immediately spiritual death enters into human experience. And as a result of sin, part of God's judgment on the human race involves conflict in the area of personal responsibility and labor. Part of the responsibility identified in Genesis chapter 3 was that the uh, man and the woman were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, one of the consequences of sin is now the woman is going to experience uh, uh, multiplied pain in labor and childbirth. But for the man... What will happen is in his sphere of responsibility, he is going to have resistance and pain and suffering from the earth, from tilling the soil. So in verse 17 of Genesis 3, God uh, said to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground. That just means a judgment. God is not cursing it like witchcraft or juju black magic. The, the biblical concept of a curse is just a judgment from God, a negative judgment. Uh, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So men, what happened then is that work becomes toilsome. Work becomes difficult. Work, there's, there's opposition. And in an agrarian society, as we see in the beginning of creation, it's difficult because you have to uh, break the soil and weeds and thistles and thorns naturally are produced. If you don't believe me, just drive around your neighborhood sometime. You can identify the rent houses by all the weeds and uh, crabgrass and Johnson grass growing up from those who don't tend it. Just If you leave your yard alone, you know that it will just deteriorate into dirt and into uh, weeds and thorns and thistles. Genesis 3.18, God says, Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat or by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. See, work, labor, becomes toilsome. It it becomes, and because it's toilsome, our 
inclination is to do as little of it as possible. We don't, we're not all masochistic. We don't want to uh, create a lot of pain and suffering for ourselves. So we try to get away from doing as much work as we can. This is known as laziness. Uh, for those who go too far, it becomes laziness. And laziness, is, I'm defining in the sense of slothful irresponsibility toward labor or toward the responsibilities that God's given us, is as much a product of the sin nature as other foolish sins. Uh, laziness, slothfulness in the Proverbs is always associated with foolishness and with arrogance and with a failure to take personal responsibility for one's own life. And so it is always spoken of in association with sin, so laziness is is related to the sin nature. That means that for some of us, laziness is going to be a trend of our sin nature. And that's going to be sort of a default position and something we're going to have to deal with in the process of our spiritual life and spiritual growth. In the New Testament, actually this is numbered wrong, point number, should be point number four. In the New Testament, we learn that Christ reverses the effects of the fall. This is the emphasis in this uh, one section, the end of Ephesians 5 and the beginning of Ephesians 6, is that though there are negative consequences from sin on marriage, on the husband and on the wife and on the children and in terms of labor, that because of the impact of Christ's redemptive work on the cross, the effects of the fall are can be reversed to some degree through sanctification, through our spiritual growth. And thereby, we can restore labor to be something meaningful and significant before God. This is expressed in Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, that we're to serve in terms of our work, our employment, uh, not as those who are just pleasing men. Uh, We're just there as long as they're watching us, but we're there to serve God and that no matter what is uh, what you're facing in terms of your employer, in terms of any negative circumstances that you might face at work, that you're there to serve the Lord, not to serve whoever your immediate superiors uh, might be. And so we are ultimately accountable to God. We serve, in verse 6, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. This is also, this change is also seen earlier in Ephesians 4.28 when Paul uh, challenges him, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, let him work. Work is a positive value in the Christian life. Uh, this was uh, de- devoted um, or developed later on in, by a sociologist named Max Weber, in his uh, work on uh, sociology in the early part of the 20th century, and he called it, uh, referred to it as the Protestant work ethic. But it's not really unique to the Protestant. There, there was an emphasis on 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 righteous labor coming out of the Protestant Reformation. But there was a a whole stream of history behind that that went back into the early Middle Ages where you see the development of a free market system and of uh, initiative and capital investment, things of that, uh, in the early early Middle Ages. For example, you had a number of monasteries who would produce certain things. Some produced beer, some produced wine, later some produced 
champagne, and they would trade among themselves in order to get different goods and be able to get different goods and services. And so this idea of a free market system is not rooted in a Protestant work ethic, although there is such a thing. It's rooted really in those who understood the biblical teaching of labor, honest labor and work. So there is a spiritual value to diligence. And uh, it, I think there's a correlation between how diligent a person is in their day-to-day life related to their work life, their home life, and their diligence and, and discipline in their spiritual life. Let me just show a couple of passages to you. Second Timothy 2.15 in a, <clears throat> the New King James Version reads a little differently from the way most of you probably memorized it. The uh, King James Version, the original, translated it, Study to show thyself approved unto God. Study is an appropriate translation of the term in terms of the, un- the context there, but the Greek word there is the word spudazo, and spudazo has as its core meaning the idea of putting forth an effort, being diligent, working hard in a particular direction. So Timothy is challenged by Paul in terms of his ministry to be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed. See, that applies to anybody who is involved, whether vocationally or not, in any form of Christian service, that we are to be diligent and work hard at it. Uh, in Hebrews 4.11 we read, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. This is focusing on the millennial rest, being prepared to go into the millennial kingdom to rule and reign with Christ. And that means that we're to be diligent about our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. We need to prioritize it. We need to evaluate what we do within our spiritual life and prioritize different facets of it, our prayer life, scripture reading, our spiritual service, our service in the local church, and being involved in studying the Word. Second Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, uh, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. And other, what, the point I'm making here is that we are to be diligent and labor in our spiritual life. It's not something that just passively happens, but we are to be dedicated to its development. Second Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot or blemish. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul talks about how he labored in in his ministry. He says, but I labored more abundantly than they all in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15.10. In Philippians 2.16, he says, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Usually we emphasize grace so much that salvation is not by works that we lose sight of the fact that we are to labor and work in our spiritual life, making sure that we are diligent in our spiritual nourishment, taking in the word and application of the word. In Philippians 2.16, we read, holding fast uh, the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And then in Colossians 1.29, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working 
with which works in me mightily. Notice this emphasis on work. So, so the work ethic is not only significant in terms of our day-to-day uh, employment, our day-to-day uh, vocation, but it is it relates also to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. So we can be lazy in our spiritual life as well as in our physical life and in employment. And I think that one of the problems that we have today is that there are far too many Christians who are lazy and slothful in their Christian life. They do not put forth any effort at all to grow spiritually. They think they can show up at church once a week and that somehow uh, 45 minutes, in most churches it's 20 minutes, but uh, 45 minutes or an hour of Bible study is going to counteract uh, all of the rest of the week where they are being uh, inculcated with the values of the world system. And so, and this is just irrational. I often say, if you think that, you're going to have a lot more fun just staying at home and sleeping late on Sunday morning because you're really not going to get anywhere in your spiritual life if you think 45 minutes on Sunday morning is enough to counter all the rest of the week. That's just not realistic at all. We have to make it a focal point. We have to focus on things like memorizing Scripture. I was so pleased uh, last week, for those of you who don't know, we had a special speaker for our uh, men's prayer breakfast a week ago Saturday, Rafael Cruz, who's the father of uh, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz from Texas. And Rafael Cruz has been in a pastoral ministry working with uh, various uh, 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 Hispanic groups in the last several years. And he gave a great talk on why Christians need to be involved in politics, and that's up on the DeanBible.org website uh, if you hadn't seen it. But afterwards, as a, a number of, and this got video too, his microphone was still on and about 30 people came up and were asking him questions for a long time, and I understand the Q&A got on the video as well, which is fine. But um, one of the things he commented to me afterwards was that people just don't memorize Scripture anymore. And I've tried to emphasize this in our prep school program that I don't care if these kids get out of prep school and they can't tell you much of anything, but if they have 50 or 60 Bible verses memorized, then that's going to strengthen them for the rest of their life. And who knows which of those kids may end up in some kind of a ministry, but most of the time when we really need to claim a promise, we're not anywhere near our Bible. And what you have in your heart from the scripture is what you need and what's going to be with you when and if we ever reach a point when we don't have much access uh, to our Bibles. And that's happened in far, to far greater cultures and nations than ours. So we should not succumb to the arrogance of thinking, well, that's not going to happen to our country. Well, that's what the Ro- Greeks thought, and that's what the Romans thought, and before them, that's what the Jews thought, that's what the Babylonians and the Persians thought. Every nation that fails the test of prosperity sooner or later internally collapses, and there's always hostility to those who hold to the truth. And the only thing that enables us to survive is that we hide the word of God in our heart, as the psalmist said. And I was just pleased that Raphael uh, was emphasizing that. We have to be diligent in these areas, diligent in our prayer life, and not become lazy sluggards. So first of all, what is the, what do we learn about the sluggard? I've got eight things on sluggards and eight things on being diligent, wise workers. Uh, Proverbs 6, 6, 
focuses on the uh, core passage that we start with, and that's where you should be looking if you turned in your uh, Bibles to Proverbs 6. The sluggard is irresponsible. He's lazy. He is slow to work. That's the essence of the meaning of the word, is slow, someone who refuses to make haste, as we'll see. And the illustration is that... that, um, the writer of Proverbs uses is the ant. Solomon says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways. That's a word that means to think, to reflect upon something, to analyze. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. So the first thing we see is in this particular passage in verse 6, this emphasis on the sluggard. Now, the word that's translated sluggard is the word atzel in the Hebrew, which means to be slow, to be sluggish, to be lazy. It's used one time as a verb in the book of Judges at an episode towards the end of Judges in Judges 18, uh, verse 9, when there's this episode where a civil war is breaking out uh, among the Jews against the tribe of Dan, and as uh, one as the uh, the priest in the story calls upon the other tribes to come up to attack the Danites, uh, they hesitate. And there's that word: don't hesitate when you go into battle. Don't be slow. Don't be sluggish. The words used uh, 16 times in. Wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, in order to describe the person who is is lazy, the person who is irresponsible, the person who just doesn't do on a daily basis what they're supposed to do. An illustration is given in Proverbs 24, something you can see a little bit of. I saw just yesterday as my wife and I were out walking in the morning, uh, we walked by one house, and it didn't look like anybody had cut the grass in about six weeks, and the weeds were overgrown, and there were two or three cars in the driveway, and obviously people there. Uh, my opinion was, yeah, it's probably a rent house, but people just don't care about property, and they don't take, take care of it. And we see this example here in Proverbs 24:30. I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. So there's a correlation there between the one who is lazy. He doesn't understand reality. He's living in his own little fantasy world, thinking that somehow it'll get done some way by somebody else later on. Uh, Procrastination is very much a part of slothfulness. There it was, he said, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. See, this is the product of the living in a fallen world. Its stone wall was broken down, no protection. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it, received instruction. See, the wise person is going to learn from the slothful person, but the slothful person won't learn anything from the diligent wise worker. So the conclusion is in verse 34, So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. In other words, it will sneak up upon you like a robber who's going to steal and take from you all that you have. second point we learn is that the sluggard lacks initiative and drive. In other words, when he's not, when he's not being supervised, he's just a man-pleaser. 
And so he's not being supervised when there's no captain, overseer, or ruler. He defaults to doing nothing, pulls out his iPhone and starts playing a game, or his computer gets on a game, or he daydreams, takes a nap, uh, many different ways in which workers distract themselves and keep from actually uh, performing their responsibilities at, at, at work. And thus they are stealing money and, t- money and time from their uh, employer. And so we see this depiction here of the sluggard as someone who lacks initiative, he lacks drive, he's not thinking, how can I be of benefit to the one who is employed? He's just waiting for the paycheck, doing as little as he possibly can without any um, any initiative. Colossians 3.22 echoes the passage in Ephesians 6.6 6 that I quoted earlier about being a man-pleaser rather than serving the Lord. He often makes up excuses for why he can't accomplish things. Proverbs 22.13 says, The lazy man says, there's a lion outside. Now, that doesn't mean there's a lion outside. He's just, in the story, he's just, he's, something could happen. I may go outside and fail. I, I, may, I may lose something. I'm not going to I'm not even going to put anything at risk, including myself. I'm just going to stay inside, turn on the afternoon soaps and relax. Uh, there's a lion out there. I'm going to be slain in the streets. He makes up excuses for not getting his responsibilities done. Third point is the sluggard procrastinates. Why do today what we can put off till tomorrow? That's always one of my favorite mottos. Let's put it off till tomorrow. That's the sign of the sluggard. He lives for today, makes no preparation for tomorrow and just hopes that somehow it will take care of itself. Now, again, we need to draw an important distinction in the life of the believer. We live day to day. We live for today. We're not going to worry for tomorrow. We're not going to succumb to mental attitude, sins of anxiety, fear, worry about the future. That's in the Lord's hands. But on the other hand, we do have a responsibility to prepare for the future. The classic example of this in Scripture is of Joseph when he was in Egypt. Uh, he was in prison, and God gave him a vision of what would happen in the future, that there would be come this terrible famine that would be preceded by uh, seven years of plenty. And so during that time of the years of plenty, they, they took extra from the produce, they stored it in the storehouses, and then when the time came that they were uh, in the famine, uh, they had stored in savings that which they would need to get them through. And so the sluggard doesn't do that. He just procrastinates. He's too distracted by not doing anything today to worry about tomorrow. Proverbs 20, verse 4 says, The uh, lazy man will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. See, the ant will lay up for itself all during the uh, summer. And then when the winter comes, the ant has provided for itself. It's very interesting to watch the ant in terms of, uh, of labor. Uh, because this illustration is used throughout uh, Scripture, the focal point of the worker uh, aspect of an ant. There are over 11,000 varieties of ants that are known to entomologists, and they have a total population of over one quadrillion. That's a 10 followed by 15 zeros. won't be long before a national debt gets there. They, su- they have success in many different environments, 
Uh, it's due to their social organization. They work as a team, and they do the same thing day in and day out. There's something about that regularity, that consistency, that is part of the illustration of, of the, their, their value in terms of labor. So Solomon uses uh, the ant as well as many other creatures to uh, communicate different values in the, uh, in, in the Proverbs. Uh, what happens in ants? Ants never fight among themselves. They always work as a team, and they always attack a common enemy. They're not busy taking care of each other. If you want to see an illustration of that, go kick a fire ant bed one day, and you'll see how you become the enemy and everyone's united against you. Uh, when they work together, they everything gets out of its way. Think of the army ants down in South America. No matter how large the animal is or no matter how many people they are, they all get out of the way as the ant works and goes forward. The ant lays up for the future. And so that is an illustration that we should be providing for our future, providing and saving for the future. Fourth point is that the sluggard delights in sleep. He delights in entertainment and distraction rather than focusing on work and responsibilities. He's more concerned about what's going to happen in terms of recreation and social life after work than carrying out his responsibilities uh, at work. Proverbs 6, 9 through 11 uh, focuses on this, this idea of sleep. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. That The writer is so sarcastic. He's just caustic. See, this is God speaking. People get this idea, oh, you can't be sarcastic. That's, that's not Christian. Well, God is very sarcastic towards those who are disobedient toward him. Um, and so the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, says, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Several times we see that same illustration used uh, in, the, in the scriptures relating to the result, the poverty that comes upon the sluggard. Fifth point, the sluggard is looking for easy money and easy riches. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. They think that somehow it's just going to happen for them, that they don't have to be diligent and follow these principles of labor that God has embedded within the social structure of creation. Proverbs 14.23 says, In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Sixth point is that the sluggard produces many destructive, unintended consequences. He thinks he's just being lazy for himself, but it hurts his family, it hurts his co-workers, he hurts those around us. Proverbs 18.9, he who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. He destroys wealth, he destroys productivity, he destroys uh, the home, because he fails to provide for th things that should be provided for, for things that might come in terms of uh, disaster. Proverbs 10.26 says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who sent him. And when you get, uh, 
you taste vinegar, you just want to wince. When you get smoke in your eyes, you just want to close your eyes and pull back. You don't want to be involved. And that's the idea in the imagery there. You just wish you'd never met the lazy person. Now, God has ordained various consequences for being lazy. Now, think about this in terms of a spiritual application. There are consequences to being spiritually lazy. You won't grow. You won't be prepared to face the disasters of life. You won't be prepared to face the eternal rewards for us at the judgment seat of Christ, and we won't be prepared to go into the millennial kingdom. We will be saved, but we don't want to be like the Christian who suffers loss at the judgment seat of Christ and enters into the kingdom yet as through fire. So God has ordained severe consequences for sluggardliness. Uh, Proverbs fifteen nineteen: the way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns. Now, that's not a hedge for protection. That's being, that brings suffering upon the person. If you try to go through the hedge, you get scraped and you get uh, cuts, and uh, it's very painful. But the way of the upright is a highway. The hedge blocks progress, but a highway opens the door to options and opportunities and to a future of uh, a, a bright future. Proverbs 10, 4, and 5, He who has a slack hand becomes poor. One of the consequences for sluggardliness is poverty. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. There's a reward there for those who work hard. Verse 5, He who gathers in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. So it, it is an impediment to progress. The laziness uh, brings shame, and it brings poverty. Proverbs 20, verse 13, Do not love sleep lest you come to poverty. Again, repeating that as a danger and a consequence of sluggardliness. Uh, Proverbs 19, 15, Laziness casts one into a deep sleep. You just go through life in a daze. And an idle person will suffer hunger. See, when we come along with a lot of programs, a lot of welfare programs to supply people with, with all of their needs, then that aids and abets them in their irresponsibility. Hunger is a great motivator. We take that away from people and they lose their motivation to work. Uh, Proverbs 21-25, the desire of the lazy man kills him for his hands refuse to labor. And the Proverbs 13.4, the soul of a lazy man uh, desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Now, Scripture teaches that we aren't to provide material aid to sluggers. Now, this has to be balanced with what we learn from other passages and the role of individual compassion to help people, but not in a way that enables and strengthens them in their irresponsibility. If their loss, if their poverty is a result of natural disasters, a result of various other factors other than uh, indolence, other than laziness, other than slothfulness, then yes, then there is a factor there to help and to sustain, to get them uh, in a position where they can uh, go forward. But if they are just refusing to work, not taking responsibility in the area of labor, not taking uh, jobs that can provide for them, then Paul says in Second Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Boy, doesn't that sound harsh? Yet this is what God says. If you don't work, you don't eat. 
God doesn't have a welfare program. Uh, Paul goes on to say in verse 11, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. See, if you don't work, then what you do is you just give more opportunity for the sins of the flesh. You give more opportunities for gossip and slander. You get opportunities for uh, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. You have too much time on your hands, and so you get involved with uh, various other sins. So Paul says, now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Personal responsibility is a, is a primary plank in having a productive, healthy culture, whether it's a nation, whether it's a family, whether it's a church. God does not condone or support irresponsibility. So, Next time we'll come back and we'll look at the flip side, which is the characteristics of the wise worker and how we can learn to be a wise worker fulfilling principles related to uh, wise labor and fulfilling those responsibilities. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these teachings and Proverbs. We're reminded that the greatest work that you ever engaged in was the work of our salvation. It was the work that involved sending your son, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to go to the cross to die for our sins, frequently referred to as the work of Christ for us. There he paid our penalty judicially. The sins of the world were poured out upon him, and they were paid for so that your righteousness was satisfied And therefore, we do not need to do anything. Indeed, we cannot do anything to add to his work on the cross. It was sufficient. It was complete. And so for us, it is a free gift. And so we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has uh, never trusted in Christ, that's unsure or uncertain of their eternal salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died for you. He died for your sins. He paid that penalty completely, and he offers you eternal life so that by simply trusting in him, accepting that free gift, believing that He his work is sufficient, then you have eternal life. And you are, at that instant that we believe in Christ, that instant we're born again, we're given new life in Christ, we're given eternal life that can never be taken from us, And it is our opportunity at that point to begin our spiritual growth. So that is the challenge before us, to grow spiritually and to glorify you, Lord. And, Father, we pray that you would make this uh, good news so explicit and clear to anyone here who needs to hear that. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with your word, that we might be not only diligent workers in our everyday life and our work life, but also diligent workers in our spiritual life and spiritual growth, making that a primary priority in everything that we do. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.